Join the conversation at everydaynovelist.com. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find the host at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit him up at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 921. Today we hear from Nicole, who asks... What is your process for congruence with your characters, or rather, keeping track of their information? As you're writing and you figure out things about your character, do you put them in one spot, or do you wait until, or do you wait and go back and do that on later revisions? I use Scrivener. I'm learning all sorts of things about my characters on my second or third passes, but it's annoying to have to jump out of scene, scroll to almost the bottom then hunt through my 30-plus named characters, dump in the new character info, and finally jump back to the scene. I have 24 chapters with several scenes in each, so it's a long (laughs) scroll. Alright, so the only time this is ever really a problem for me is in a a cozy-type murder mystery. Like, uh, I mentioned Death Flight in the episode we just recorded, like in Death Flight to Mars. Most of the time, this isn't an issue for me. Um... And I'll give you some reasons why. The first reason why is that um, I generally, what in multi-POV stories, I generally pick my POV character based on who would be most interesting to see this scene from. So we're with the characters as they learn the important stuff most of the time. I also bring some of my acting and improv training to bear on this. Um, I don't have a lot as an adult, but as a teenager I was really big into theater. And uh, through high school and college I did a lot of improv stuff and was in a few plays. And one of the things that you have to do in order to do a decent job at that stuff is point of view discipline. When you're in... When you're inhabiting one character, you can't go... um, Especially in improv, you can't go grabbing information that character doesn't have access to, and if you're playing that character, you can't, in a in a scripted play, you can't be borrowing from things that are later in the script and telegraphing it to the audience. You have to keep yourself in the moment. So a big part of point of view discipline is keeping, it, and, and why... Um, Frankly, as difficult as it can be voice-wise to write constrained point of views, one of the reasons that it's such a cheat, it's such a cheat, is that all you gotta do is basically act out the part of the POV character. And the POV character doesn't know what's going to happen later, so you don't know what's going to happen later in that scene. Um, Now, in terms of managing what everybody knows at what point and where they are so that you can pick up uh you can pick things up for a sequel or you can do some really canny um information control massaging afterwards whenever i establish something new about a character that i am not absolutely dead certain is going to stick in my head forever and i really do mean forever then I put a note 
to myself, this goes in the series Bible. And I have a wiki where I keep dossiers on all of my characters and plot summaries of all of my books. And it's not nearly as complete as I'd like it to be, uh, especially for the big project I'm attempting to work on right now. But it really does help because it saves me having to go back and reread and reread and reread. But that said, the other thing I do is I go back and I reread and reread and reread. Um, when I sit down at a story, if I haven't been at been in front of that story in a couple of weeks, I'll just sit down and read the whole thing up to where I left off, or I'll read back 10 or 15 pages, or I'll read the storyline of the character whose point of view is in the scene. Now, that last has a few problems, like, for example, if there are major players in scenes where there's an opposite point of view, I can miss stuff. So I try not to... I've learned the hard way not to construct my books where that's going to be too much of a problem. But in rereading and rereading and rereading, the story soaks into your bones, and you don't have to worry about reference material. Now, I mean, and Kitty can tell you, the occasional continuity error still creeps through. And I have to beat him for it. But you're, actually, you're, you edit the outcome of this messy process of mine. Why don't you describe your experience of this from an editorial point of view, of how I manage this and what it does to the story and where my process falls down? You're doing fine with describing the process. I... I, in fact, I don't really pay much attention to your process on that. No, 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 but you see the product of it. I, I see the product, and um, I basically leave you notes in the same sidebars that you leave yourself your, put this in the series Bible with, why did this person's name just change? <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess that's the other thing I do. I actually do leave myself instructions for later scenes in the sidebars yeah. as well, which I hadn't thought about. But. Right. You, you've picked a process that seems to interfere least with your writing flow mm -hmm. and still allows you to take down or take note of important information mm -hmm. that you will need to take note of later. You would never go open up your, an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of your um, characters. True. Or something like that. That's true. Now, one of the places my process does fail me is in little things that seem to be inconsequential to me when I'm writing them. Um, and then later, like, so for example, here's a really good one. I set up this detail at the beginning of Death Flight to Mars that the people who designed this spaceship that's going to Mars designed it so that the um, ceilings could project different weather and light temperatures and whatnot and ambiances from Earth so that people wouldn't go space-happy from being in this white, sterile environment for God knows how many months. Mm. And I had thought, you know, this would be a cool little textural detail. I could use it to use it later on to uh, embroider and amp up the emotional resonance of scenes. I never used it again. So when I go back through and do my continuity pass on it later this year, one of the things I'm going that's on my list of things I have to do is mention the weather. In every scene. <laughs> and change any details that that, uh, that that brings up. You know, the color of light on someone's face, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. The, the thing about Scrivener 
it works very like a lot of screenwriting programs. And the process you're describing is really, really useful for screenwriting because scripts are much more constructed than novels are. There are technical demands of the medium, especially if you're scripting television series or you're doing something to a genre formula. There are technical demands of the medium, and even if you step back on a story le- uh, on a character level, in fiction, because you've got the internal monologue, you can do all kinds of characters. In film, you've only got basically 14 types that you can, you can do, because they have to be recognizable to the audience. There is a certain degree of subtlety that limits you to that basic archetypal set. Uh, the hero, the adversary, the love interest, and you know you can combine them and whatnot, but you are limited to a set of roles that are recognizable from the audience on the screen or on the stage. You don't get to do the deeply conflicted hero with the secret life, you know, or, you know and you have a very hard time doing switcheroos in you know where your hero turns out to be a side character halfway through and you can do that in books and do it really well mm. you can't really do that in film so because you've got all these constraints with film you have to construct a screenplay in a little bit of a more deliberate way than you have to construct a book now some people do construct books this way but a lot of the best books, and I'm, I'm not saying best-selling books, I'm saying a lot of the books that are best remembered after several generations are not written like that. A lot of best-selling books are written like that. Um, written to formula. But, um, and because of that, they'll have the constraints, and those kinds of books can work really well in a, using that screenwriting methodology. But if you're doing stuff a little more freeform, if you're writing into the dark, if you're doing heavily exploratory stuff, if you're doing more literary stuff, or even if you're doing genre work that is using the genre elements as a jumping-off point rather than an epitome, at that point, the creative flow is so important that that way of keeping track of things, the construction type of... um, the construction way of working doesn't work as well because it interrupts your flow. And so if you're finding that it's working well except that it's interrupting your flow, what you want to do is you want to start adapting adapting the tools you're using, either changing when you're using them or changing how you're using them or dropping some of them and concentrating their functions in others so that you can craft your process so that it doesn't get in your way. And that comes after a lot of trial and error. I mean, I described my process for novels here, but I did screenwriting for a good while, and Kitty remembers the character sheets and the note cards Mm -hmm. that used to cover the house. (laughs) Because this was back before any of it was was, uh, electronic. And she remembers back when I used Keltex, before Scrivener was available. I used Keltex for uh, radio dramas and... uh, Mm-hmm. and film scripts. And, um, you know, I used that method, and it worked really well for that medium. didn't work too well for books. And so I gradually weaned myself off of most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you, what I have just described is what is left 
of that methodology after, God, what's it been, 15, almost 20 years? thousand. 15, almost 20 years of, of writing books and throwing out, uh, paring down the method so that I've got less in my way. So that's what I got. Thank you very much for the question, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.